September the 5th marks the 50th anniversary of Jochen Rindt's death, during practice for the 1970 Italian Grand Prix at Monza. He was, and thankfully remains, Formula One's only posthumous world champion. But he was so much more than that, and this week, we're remembering Jochen, that fast, fearless and fun racer, by speaking to some of the people who knew him best. He was, in some ways, two people. Fantastic person, enthusiastic, sportive, very competitive. He was very straightforward, and if he didn't like things, he'd tell you straightforward, you know. It wasn't really until he got into Lotus that I think he truly matured as the driver we knew him to be in Formula One. Welcome to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. Jochen Rindt was many things to many people. He was a brilliantly fast racing driver with whom Lotus boss Colin Chapman was fast developing a partnership similar to the one he'd enjoyed with double world champion Jim Clark. They won five of the opening eight races in 1970, giving Jochen a lead in the world championship that he'd never lose. Jochen was also a great friend to many of his fellow drivers. He grew up in Graz in Austria with Helmut Marko, winner of Le Mans in 1971 and now Red Bull's motorsport advisor. They went to school together and had a lot of fun and hijinks. Always was looking for something adventurous and never could sit down for 15 minutes without having an idea or let's do this or that. In F1, Piers Courage, who tragically was killed just three months before Jochen in 1970, in the midst of his brilliant winning spell, was probably Jochen's best friend. They rode motorcycles together and spent a lot of time in each other's company between races. Another great friend of Jochen's was Sir Jackie Stewart. They lived next door to each other in Switzerland, they travelled together, and Jochen's wife Nina and Jackie's wife Helen remain best friends to this day. Jackie still gets emotional talking about Jochen, even now. When somebody says 50 years, I couldn't believe it was 50 years. Jochen was also a great businessman. He had his own TV show in Austria, and he started the Jochen Rint Motor Show in Vienna, both of which were roaring successes. His manager and business advisor, Bernie Ecclestone. Do you know, we just got on very, very well together. Mm. We're just good friends. So as we remember Jochen 50 years on from his passing, let's hear from Helmut Marko, Jackie Stewart and Bernie Eccleston, beginning with Helmut to talk about the early years. It was a beautiful time we had in Austria when we just started to get used to cars and bikes and all these sort of things. And this weekend at Monza, um, it is 50 years since he was killed in practice. Can you remember where you were, what you were doing, and how you heard of Jochen's death? Yes, I remember exactly. I was with a friend in the city of Graz. At that time, there was no TV coverage. I heard it on radio. You know, it was a group of friends, four or six, I can't remember, and we all immediately came together. We tried to get more information, which was not so easy. But first, we hoped it's wrong, that he's just injured or so. But in the end, it was clear he's dead. And that was something, even so, you know, 
we were talking, okay, let's race, let's have fun and risk was not a problem because people who are 40, we are considering why are they still there, you know. But the tragedy of the whole thing was that Jochen was a wild, very risky driver in his first years in Formula One. I remember him as a Cooper Maserati here in Spa in the wet, completely sideways and doing unbelievable things with a non-competitive car. But that all has gone. Once he arrived at Lotus, he was aware about the risk and it wasn't the Jochen of the first days. It was a Jochen who was a very competitive Formula One driver, acknowledging the risk he has to take and especially the risk which came from Chapman and his construction. So he was worried and that also for us, we couldn't believe now a Jochen who was cautious, who was not taking all the risk he did before and then having an accident in practice. Though in the end we all got drunk completely. It was very sad experience and also what happened afterwards, the funeral, the first time Graz became an international city because so many people from the racing world came, international TV companies and so on. And there will be some celebrations in Graz next week and astonishing in Graz, his grave, whenever you go there, there are flowers, there are candle burning. So I don't know any other sportsman who is so known and the memory of him is always, he was an idol. Austria basically is a ski nation, you know. If you get popular, you have to be a skier. But he was the first one who broke this uh, tradition and still Jochen is a, a mythos. Helmut, for people who aren't aware, can you just explain how you met Jochen and, and how close you were? I can't remember exactly uh, where we met the first time, but we, the interests were we had MOFAs, that are small motorbikes, which you are allowed to drive with 15, or with uh, at skiing, or at some of the little restaurants where also females were around, like that. And we ended up in the same school, in the same class. And when we had been 17, before Christmas, our examinations and so on were not the best and we made a deal with the director from the school to say believe if you give us a positive test so and then we went to Patasee which was a boarding school known of being not the strongest I would say you know and a lot of sport and that was the reason why Jochen or why we got a car at the school we were skiing at Krippenstein, which was a mountain quite... Jochen was a fantastic skier, but anyway, an accident broke his leg. And the boarding, the house where we lived to the school was about a walk, 40, 50 minutes. Of course, with a broken leg, you couldn't do it. Jochen was owner of a Gewürzmühle, produced pepper and all this stuff. 
Spices. Spices, exactly. So, and they send a VW, an old Beetle, with a chauffeur, traditionally, you know, tie and a cap. And we were already at that time very economical. So we found the director of this spicy factory. We have a guy in our class who has a driving license, so the chauffeur can go home again, which was true. This guy had a driving license, but he never was in the car. So, <laughs> and so it all started for about half a oh, year. Oh, Helmut, you sound like you two were naughty boys. I mean, what sort of a child was Jochen? Was he, because his parents were killed in the Second World War, weren't they? And he, he, he grew up with his maternal grandparents. Did yes. he ever talk about his parents? No, he was too young. He didn't have any memory. And his mother was from Graz. His father was a German. The grandfather was quite a well-known lawyer. So he always had uh, a good financial background. For example, he got a Lona Sisi motorbike. And when we went off-road, it was not competitive. He immediately went in a shop and was buying a more competitive, that was a book. But he always was looking for something adventurous and uh, he never could sit down for 15 minutes without having an idea or let's do this or that and so And academically was he strong? I mean you've implied that, that you weren't going to get any exams but was he a bright guy? Yes, he was a bright guy. In the end what we call Matura that was also we had bad luck uh, the owner of this boarding school got in political troubles with the government and he was not allowed to do official examinations. So we had to go to a pub and other school. So all our preparation, which I don't want to go into details how we prepared for these examinations. So they didn't really expect us and we failed uh, Jochen in two parts, me in one. So we were sitting Steinach, uh, was it called. And what should we do? If we go home, only travels. So we decided, I don't know how we find out, uh, there's a Grand Prix at Nürburgring. So we jumped, he had a Simca at that time, jumped in the car, went to Nürburgring. On the way, we stopped Mainz, which was on the way. The night porter, he told him, I am the owner. The guy was looking at him and <laughs> didn't believe. So. He asked him to, I think it was three or four o'clock in the morning, to call the manager, director, because we needed some money to go forward. In the end, we got the money, we went to Nürburgring, slept just on the grass, and we awoke. And when the cars passed by, we woke up, and that was also astonishing. Jochen went up and was looking and said, that is what I want to do. So I surprised he had a shock or something. Uh, we didn't drink. I was really surprised because, you know, in Austria, we didn't have any international racing. And that was a world nearly as far away like the moon. Well, what took you to Nürburgring in 1961 if neither of you at that moment knew that you wanted to be a racing driver? As I said, we were frustrated because we didn't make the examinations. Going home would have been not the nicest time. I don't know how we got the idea to go to the Nürburgring. Somehow, and it was the first ever Grand Prix we saw in life. So Helmut, there's no international racing in Austria. So 
how did you keep up with what was going on in the racing world and is it true that Wolfgang von Tripps was one of Jochen's heroes? Uh, we went to Nürburgring and I can't remember who won the race but Tripps was I think leading the championship a couple of weeks later or was it fortnight later in the evening you know at that time there was no news on the radio about Formula One and so on TV also didn't TV was just starting. On the top of the roof is on one of our main square. There was a, a band where the news are coming. You know what I mean? I don't know how you call it. And all of a sudden, uh, Trips was killed in Monza. So, you know, six hours after the accident, we were informed by this public information. And yes, he was the first guy, a German, and being in a Ferrari, so for us, an ideal combination. So how much did you and Jochen stay in touch when he went to England to pursue a racing career? I mean, that was really brave to go as this young boy, Mysterian English, what we learned at school. He started in Austria, in Styria, hill climbing, rallying, winning everything. Then he went into Formula Junior, also more or less locally, Austria, Italy, won everything. And so he decided there's no one who, is, who can challenge me. I go to England, there is where the real motorsport is happening. How much support did Jochen have from Austria or was he relying purely on his own personal wealth to get him to England? Austria at that time didn't have any car production. We have now small production with Magna, but it was just in like Germany. Germany supported their drivers, but couldn't bring anyone to be a competitive Formula One driver. So most of his funding, he came from his spicy factory. But as mentioned already, he was very economical and he found petrol company. I think BP was one of his first sponsors. But the Formula 2 car in England, he bought from his own money. But that was just, I think, the only investment he did. From then onwards, he started, I think, Crystal Palace was a race where he was pole position. I don't know if he won it, but he was in the leading. And from there on, he was in the business and didn't have to spend on money. Were you surprised that he did as well as he did? Really surprised. As I <laughs> mentioned before, you know, that was a different world for us. At that time, I was forced by my father to study because he says, you have to learn something seriously. And after that, you can do what you want. So we still stayed in contact. And I have to say, he also helped me gave me advice and there was also planned a Formula 2 team which he was planning to run together with Bernie Ecclestone and the drivers were Fittipaldi and me but all that didn't happen that was planned for 1971 and the reason why he was so interested you know part of his income had been the racing car shows he had one in Vienna the mother Austrian cities and the big one he got involved in Essen and he knew he needs some um, local interest, a local driver that's a racing car, if he, because it was planned that he stops in 1970. That's an interesting point. So he planned to stop at the end of 1970? Yeah. And had he told people 
that. Had he told you that? Yes, he had told me that he had a bet with Nina. If he don't stop, he has to pay her, I don't know the amount. And he was aware about the risk. But then Chapman, who was a genius constructor, but also a genius stalker, convinced him by telling him he's producing a car. It was his four-wheel drive with a turbine, and he can win every race just easy. That's why he or planned not to stop and do another year. So to do 71 as well? Yes. Now, it's interesting how Jochen's attitude to danger changed during his life, because all the escapades that you two got up to as kids, completely carefree, and yet the longer he stayed in Formula One, the more aware of the risks he became. I mean, he saw all the accidents. From my memory, what hit him really hard was Pierce Courage accident in Sanford when I think he won the race, but he passed the burning car. I don't know how many laps. And I remember the first question after he got out of the car was, how is Pierce? There he saw, I mean, he saw quite a few other people dying, but that was what really made him uh, thinking and getting aware what sort of risk he's taking at that days, you know, the cars, uh, was no more uh, carbon fiber monocoque, the safety on the circuits was practically not there, and from there on he changed his complete approach. How much racing did you and Jochen do together? Uh, we did together some hill climbing in Austria, but the most uh, enjoyable was a Formula V race in, on the Bahamas. You know, he was a Formula One star and Formula V came out from Germany and Austria and was a super formula. Basically, with no money, you could race internationally. And he obviously got well paid, or well paid in these days was maybe $100,000 or so. And he raced with all the youngsters, Beltoise was also there. And we had a lot of fun. <laughs> practice was limited so we organized our own practice and then police came to check and of course it was a rear engine car and they were trying if the hood in the front is hot or not. <laughs> Do you think you might have done some in endurance racing together? Can you imagine winning Le Mans with Jochen? Would have been fantastic but at this stage he was focusing on Formula One and he was serious about retiring. And you know, Le Mans at these days was also not an easy race. And basically every Le Mans race had one or two people killed at least. How did fame and fortune change him? Not at all. He was just, of course, you know, had a Jaguar E-type. He dressed himself uh, yeah, like a pop star. He was a pop star of motorsport. He, he had a slightly disheveled look. I mean, I've seen photographs where he had string instead of shoelaces. He was almost like, is it fair to say Jochen was the, the James Hunt of his era? Uh, I think they had been completely different characters. What was definitely in common is the cigarette. Jochen always had his born more, you know. And when he was, or in the evening, sometimes, 20 a night was standard for him. 
But James came in a different time. There was TV already and so on. In Jürgen's time, TV wasn't so popular, or most of the racing hadn't been televised. And that he changed, yes, his style. And But as a person, he had the same approaches. We went to the same restaurants, eating what he was eating before and having fun. He had a good sense of humor and always looking for some adventurous things. Nothing but this boring or standard that didn't interest him at all. You touched earlier on the unreliability of the lotuses and he had a big crash in Spain in 1969. Did you ever talk to him about that? Because that was a car failure, wasn't it? Yes, the rear wing broke, you know. They just put wings in the rear, getting bigger and bigger without any calculations or so. But what really worried him on the Lotus 70 was the import uh, brake discs, you know. And he didn't get through with it to Chapman. Chapman, he said, didn't listen to him. And he felt ignored. And so he lost confidence in the construction where he was right because there had been quite a few accidents so the second driver was a John Miles he was very young he looked like a college student yeah, with his glasses yeah yeah, yeah. and said he does what Chapman says and he was no support for him I mean I've read a quote I don't know if it's actually what Jochen said, but I've read that he was asked after that crash in Spain, um, have you lost confidence in Chapman's cars? He and, never. He and he said, I never, is that true? I yes. never had confidence yes. in Chapman's cars. True. I mean, funny enough, I also was in Finland, uh, where Nina's parents had a house, very nice house at the sea, and he had negotiations with uh, McLaren, and in the end, he said he wanted to to win a championship, he wanted to win, but he was aware McLaren would have been a solid team, but they don't have the machinery which guarantees him victories. So he was aware about the risk to go to Lotus, but he said, yes, I want to win the championship. And he thought he could influence Chapman to go less risky because the car was so competitive. If they would have put the brakes outside, uh, as normal, I think they still would have won races. At Monza, they took the rear wing off, didn't they? To try and increase the straight line speed. Was that standard practice? That was standard practice at these times. And that wasn't reasons for the accident. I, I know it wasn't the reason for the accident, but, but in terms of trying to rein in yeah, Chapman. Yeah. And that, <laughs> you just tried things. And of course, he was, Chapman was the one who did everything to the extreme from the technical side. Knowing Jochen like you did, what do you think he might have gone on to achieve had he lived? I think he would have run Formula One together with Bernie Ecclestone. They were getting closer and closer. He was some sort of advisor for him and he would build up his racing show business. So I think he would be together with Ecclestone running the show. He had that much of a commercial brain. Yes, he was really and that developed better than if he would have gone to a university. And what did Jochen do for Austrian motorsport? For Austrian motorsport, without him, I don't think Austria would be where we are. Because of this, 
his success, the Österreich rink was built. It was our first permanent Grand Prix circuit. Journalists were going to every race before, you know, there was, we, we were informed a day later, so what's happening internationally. So it became a popular motorsport, which made it possible for me, Niki Lauda, Gerhard Berger, to get into the sport, find the sponsors, find the necessary funding. All that is only through Jochen. And is it true that he triggered the interest in Dietrich Mateschitz as well, the boss of Red Bull? Uh, there was a hill climb, Alper. I mean, unbelievable. He drove there with a Porsche 906. Austrian hill climbs, you know, that's really something. Of course, no guardrail and so on. And Dietrich Mateschitz lives in St. Marain, which is maybe 10 or 15 kilometers away. And he watched this hill climb race. And of course, Jochen was a star. I don't know it exactly, but I, I guess that uh, brought up the interest for motorsport in Dietrich. And he always admired Jochen Rind very much. So, coincidence. Fortunately, a very good one for us. 50 years is a long time but also it feels just like yesterday. How often have you thought of Jochen over the last five decades? Very often, because as I mentioned before, life after 30 for us, couldn't imagine that it is a life. And now all the fantastic moments I had in these 50 years, that he missed all that, you know, a world outside of racing, not this stress to enjoy life and so on. He had the money, he had the personality. So very, very often I thought, oh, poor Jochen, you didn't know. But unfortunately, that's what it is. But he missed a lot. And it's a shame because even if he would have retired, he would be a big input for the Austrian, not only sport, for the whole Austrian nation. Even so, he had a German passport. But in his heart, his language, everything was Austrian. Will you take a moment at Monza next weekend just to pay your respects? I go to the grave on Wednesday. This, the mayor of Graz will name uh, as a new uh, part of Graz, just under construction, and the main square will be named Jochen Rindplatz. And there will be a movie which was done from Holy's life, young days and so on. And of course, Monza, I will have my minute somewhere privately. We'll be continuing our celebration of Jochen's life and career after this short message. If you've been listening to the past few episodes of Beyond the Grid, then you'll know that I've recently been using a new fitness tool called Whoop and with great results. Whoop is the 24-7 health and fitness tracker that helps you monitor critical daily metrics like sleep, recovery, calorie burn and strain. What I really like is the simplicity of it all. All you need to do is slip the Whoop band onto your wrist, connect it to an app on your phone and let it do the hard work for you as you go about your daily work and exercise routine. It automatically measures your heart rate variability, resting heart rate, sleep tracking and activity levels throughout the day. And each morning, all you need to do is check the app to see that it's calculated a recovery score based on your data. Whoop then tailors its recommendations for exercise and rest for the day ahead that are personal to you. So you can easily track those much needed rest days, 
to avoid overexertion or perhaps push yourself a little further towards your exercise goals. Whoop is offering 15% off right now with the code GRID at checkout. Go to whoop.com, that's whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter GRID at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop today. Jochen and Jackie Stewart live just one kilometer apart in Switzerland. Their families spent a lot of time together, and Jackie and Jochen enjoyed some of the greatest wheel-to-wheel dices the sport has ever seen. Anyone who was at the British Grand Prix in 1969 will never forget their race-long duel for the lead. Here are Jackie's thoughts on Jochen. We clicked together very well, and we were probably opposite players in so many different ways. He was super casual. I was always issue of presenting myself because of sponsors. He hadn't the same flair, if you like, of finding multinational corporations. So so it didn't seem to worry him. He became a very good friend. I mean, we went on holiday together and things like that with Nina and Helen and I and Jim Clark, actually. We traveled a lot together. I think he was, he was a deep person. And one of his best friends was Bernie Eccleston. And I think that he would have joined Bernie in some form or another. And I think also he was going to retire at the end of his championship year because he was not enjoying the Lotus fragility, if you like to call it that. And he was very distressed by that. So his other very good friend was Piers Courage uh, within the racing world. And he and Piers got on very well. And Piers used to come over and stay with us at Clayton House in Switzerland, that is. And also up in Jochen and Nina's. So we, we had a, it was a lovely relationship we had. Obviously, he wasn't close to Jimmy to Jim Clark, where I obviously was because of the Scottish thing and knowing each other for such a long time. But he had his pals in Austria, of course. His tailor uh, was a great character. And when he did dress up, he dressed up well. For example, for his shows, the, the, the Rocky Rint show in Vienna was a big event. And he did it extremely well and kept it going as, as in fact, Nina did for quite some time. He he was, in some ways, two people. And that showed up on the track as well, Tom. It wasn't really until he got into Lotus that I think he truly matured as the driver we knew him to be in Formula One. In Formula Two, these little cars were wonderful to drive, much easier to drive. You could overdrive a Formula Two car, but you could go off with it. And that's what he was. He was opposite locking amazingly, spectacularly, better control, if you like, than most anyone would wish to try for. You've really summed up the man, Jackie. I mean, if we can just talk a little bit more about Jochen, the racing driver. So are you saying he was a little bit wild in the early years and it was only when he got to Lotus that he calmed down a bit? And and he was a guy, obviously, that you were happy to go wheel to wheel with because you did that so often. Oh, uh, I mean, he had impeccable manners on the track. When he was driving Formula 2 on his way up, 
before he actually got into Formula One, he was wild, fast and furious, but effective. And in those days, you know, tires didn't go off. They were very hard. So therefore, it wasn't a question of today we'd be overheating tires and they would be no good in three or four laps. That wasn't the case then. The tires were made for the full season almost. (laughs) (laughs) A slight exaggeration, but no, his sideways opposite lock was Formula 2. And actually, I don't think was maybe in Formula 1 other than maybe the Cooper that I saw him driving a bit. But he wasn't up there, if you understand. Even with Brabham, he wasn't quite up there. But by the time he got to the Lotus, and I think, you know, he was his, you know, was a good friend of mine, and he was also a good friend of Jimmy's. And I think he was beginning to see that way of driving. And definitely in Lotus, because that race we had at Silverstone, was a fantastic race. I mean, he got pole, but I was a wee bit quicker, actually. But Pierce Courage, ironically, hit a cornerstone in Woodcott, and it bounced right onto the back of my rear tire and exploded at Woodcott, which in those days was about 153 miles an hour flat. And uh, I had a big shunt, went through, fortunately, the the fencing that I had, the chain link fencing that I had insisted upon. And I wasn't hurt at all. The car was quite badly damaged. And I I couldn't qualify the other one quite as fast. So Jochen was in the pole. I was next to him. But because both of us understood each other extremely well, and I think I certainly had confidence in him, and, and it would seem also he had confidence in me, because we had more than 30 changes, not always in the start-finishing line, but we'd always slipstream over hangar. He would point, or I would point, of what side to pass. That's extraordinary. 30 times this happened. And, 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 and if I passed him going through hangar straight, you would again pass between Abbey Curve and Woodcott, which was the last corner. But it was tighter there. So... I would then have I'd get him to go ahead because we were pulling away from the rest of the field. I think we lapped the entire field, if you look back. So we wouldn't have done that had we been racing in a manner that I think would be par for today's course. It just wasn't like that. Jackie, had he not run out of fuel, would it have been a little bit more ruthless in the closing laps? Well, first of all, he went in without running out of fuel. He went in because the rear wing end plate on the right-hand side was coming off and it was rubbing against the tyre. And I drove alongside him going down the hangar straight and pointed at his rear tyre. He looked in his mirror and he saw it. Now, that would have been an explosion of a tyre. So that's why he went into the pits. When he went into the pits, it then because of the surge and everything, the fuel was not enough, and that was a mistake by Lotus, obviously. Mm. There was no leakage, I don't think. But the reason he went into the pits wasn't because of fuel. It was because the end plate was coming off. And in those days, you know, we had so, well, having so many fatalities at that time. That, that type of thing, I mean, if it had happened to me, I would have done this what he did. 
I would have gone out the pitch. Can I ask you about a couple of other races as well? Uh, in that 1969 season, the Italian Grand Prix, you beat Jochen by eight hundredths of a second. Was that a bit like Silverstone as well in terms of slipstreaming and telling each other? No, that, that wasn't the same. There was a very good reason for that. Um, and it might not have been the full reason because I was never a man for pole positions. It didn't mean a thing to me, pole positions. You still got 17 of them. Yeah, no, but that's in comparison to what I could have got. But we spent our time setting up the car for a race. That was Ken Tyrrell for you in a big way. And we found a gear ratio that took me from the parabolica. We had a gear change going out the parabolica. But then I had a gear that went past the finishing line with a little fuel on. And we spent the whole weekend getting that so that I didn't have to change gear before the start finishing line because I might have missed a gear. In those days, it was a hand shift on the right-hand side. And we thought we'd remove all the downside risks. And it was Ken that drove it, really. And I would not have won the race. I mean, I don't know whether... You see, Beltwise kind of screwed it up. Because going into the Parabolica, on the last lap, he got past Jochen and me. But he went wide. He carried a bit too much speed on the turn-in. And he was wide, so we both passed him. And Bruce was right there as well. And my gear shift took me past the start-finishing line by this much. What did Jochen say to you after the race? Uh, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> we, had a good, we had a good chat about it. And, uh, I mean, it would have been one of the things that I know he would have done the next year. Can we talk about Monaco 1970? I mean, you retired from the race having started on pole, but there was that extraordinary situation where Jack Brabham made that mistake at the last corner of the last lap. Jochen, in, well, I was going to say, inherited the win, but maybe that's a little unfair. Did he force the mistake? I don't think he did. I think Jack Brabham, under pressure, made a mistake. The funny bit about it was I, I fell out that race. I had... The Matra had a mechanical failure. And I was out of the race, but I was down on the pits. And Jochen won the race. I went out waving at Jochen because he was my pal. And Herbie Blash, who was the mechanic for Jack Brabham, he said, <laughs> It was exactly what he said. Because he thought, well, my man's just had an accident. And here are me cheering Jochen. Yeah. It was very funny. Although that's a, that's a real insight into your relationship with Jochen, though, isn't it? As much as anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, in, I was in the middle of the track, you know, uh, waving at him, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Jackie, can we talk about Jochen's attitude to safety? And I'm going to start this by asking you about the Spanish Grand Prix in 1969. Both Jochen and Graham had failures huge accidents and Jochen came out after the race and said that he didn't have any confidence in Chapman's cars. Did you talk to him about that accident, his attitude to safety in general? What did he have to say? I was in the race. In fact, I think I won the race. Obviously, I saw the accident up close and personal, you know, because we all had to slow down to almost stop getting past the shunt. Both Graham and Jochen, for the same reason, again, a mechanical failure with a design issue, saving weight and considerable benefit of performance. 
Also, there was the question of the barriers weren't properly constructed. So that's why. And Jochen's bang in the head. I went to see him that night in hospital. I, that was obviously the beginning of the fragility. Because, you know, we had wings and the turtle. And Brabham had wings. And everybody else had wings. But Chapman's wings were probably higher or thinner or I don't know. But again, it was Colin. I mean, he was the finest designer of racing cars that's probably ever lived. But there were more people killed in Lotuses than any other Formula One car. So that crash of Jochen's at the 69 Spanish Grand Prix, how much did it shake him up? Did it shake his confidence? I don't think it did. I, I think he was very angry that the two cars had, two of the Lotus cars at the same corner had had the same mechanical failure. I think he was angry at that, but he was angry at the fragility of the car. I mean, he wrote a letter before Monza to Colin about that. He talked to me about it a lot. And I'm absolutely convinced he would have retired at the end of that season because he would have won the championship. There's no question about that. I mean, the Jackie X could have won it and I could have won it. But if Jochen had stayed alive, the Lotus and Jochen Rind, I wasn't going to be able to beat him because that was my year of, of being off a bit. Did you and him discuss safety? You were the pioneer. And how proactive was Jochen in, in that field? We closed the Nürburgring because Jochen had gone there and they would not do one thing on 176 corners. We drove more than three times off the, the road, or, you know, high off the road, you know, jumping. And they wouldn't do anything. Jochen said, and he was always very direct, it was famous, they were useless. They, they wouldn't do one thing, not one thing. Because they thought if we did one thing, we'll have to do a whole lot of other things. They didn't think we had the balls to stop it. It was Jochen's visit where that came to a, a head. And Jochen was very clear on safety because at that time, you know, you know the story that Helen counted up 57 drivers who were killed, who'd stayed with us, traveled with us, holidayed with us, God knows what. Jochen knew all of those. And he and I spent a huge amount of time together in Switzerland. I mean, I didn't do motorbikes. He behaved like a, a complete maniac on motorbikes, as did Piers Courage. And they would come down in their bikes, the two of them, from Jochen's house and fly over my area, past my swimming pool, and then down a deep thing that you wouldn't want to go down. I mean, just to a vineyard, uh, behaving like idiots. <laughs> <laughs> but that was Jochen. And the same with his skiing, by the way. On the limit skier. Absolutely. But a very good skier. He's Austrian, Jackie. Got to be able to ski. Right. But, but <laughs> in a racing car, I think he was a little bit like that on the opposite lock job and his progress. When he got to the top, of course, his driving suddenly became much better because he wasn't overdriving. And I have to say that he did a lot of overdriving. But in Formula One, that already was starting to be removed. If Jimmy had been in the same car, Jimmy would have won the races, you know. But Jochen was in that car, and he was going to win the races. In a Lotus car, I don't think anybody else would have beaten Jochen Rindt. And I was driving a good car 
we had a good race in Holland when Piers died. And Piers was one of his very best friends. How much did Piers' death affect him? Well, a lot. We both, I was second and he won the race. And we obviously, both of us talked and we agreed that we wouldn't spray the champagne. And when the national anthem was played, the Dutch national anthem, all we did was drop our head throughout the whole process. Can I just take you back to Monza? When was the last time you saw Jochen? Oh, that day. We spent a lot of time together. I mean, there was no motorhomes in these days. You know, there was a caravan maybe, but there was no motorhomes. So you hung out together. Peter Gethin told me first he had been out there and drove into the pit lane. And then Denny came and told me. I went to Nina, told Nina there'd been an accident, but I don't know the situation. I'll come back immediately. I went to race control. And at that time, I was, you know, I could get access to most anywhere. And I went up to the tower and race control where all the people were at that time. And I said, what's the story? How's the driver? Uh, well, we don't really know. Uh, I said, but you've got to tell me. I've got to, his wife's down there and I've got to go back to her. And they were being very difficult, but they said, I think he's okay. We think he's okay, but we don't know. So I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't well pleased by the reaction, but I genuinely didn't think you're going to be killed. So I'm back to Nina, by which time she must have left. Chapman must have taken her somewhere because I then ran to the medical center, which was pathetic in those days. The marshal, I said, you know, no, you can't go. I said, listen, it's Jackie Stewart. And he let me in. And Jochen was lying there. And from my, um, I mean, I thought right then that Jochen had died. I then tried to run back for Nina and she must have been taken another way into that area because she then got there. Uh, a priest came out. He was giving Jochen the, the last rites when Nina was there. Lotus withdrew both of their cars from the event after confirmation of Jochen's death. Jackie, what made you get back in your car? Ken Tittle. I went back, uh, you know, to get Helen, actually. And Helen had gone with Nina to the hospital. And uh, it must have been at least 45 minutes or an hour after the accident because they had to repair the barrier. And suddenly Ken came up to me and says, right, Jackie, back in the car. You know, I mean, it was a different time, you understand. I mean, we all had seen death up close and personal a lot. So it wasn't a first of having, but I was very upset. When I got into the car, I suddenly burst into tears in the car. So I put my visor down. And I tell you, right now it affects me. And I drove around the first lap, the out lap, and slowed down to see the, where the crash had happened because I didn't know where the crash had happened. I knew it was the parabolica, but I didn't know where it was. I did that slow lap with the car. My next lap was the fastest lap I've ever done at Monza in a march. I put myself second on the grid and came back in and then burst into tears again. John Lindsay, my best friend, was there. He was standing there. I got out the car. I was obviously not feeling good. He gave me a bottle of Coca-Cola because my, my mouth was a mess. It was just a horrible feeling. 
I took a few drinks of it and smashed the cola bottle. I've never done that in my life. I never did it again. I had never done it before. So the emotion of that event, partly maybe because I had been as close as I was to Jochen in the medical center, I don't know. But we were also close. And the wives were also close. We would go to races together. We'd fly to races together. We would drive to races together. How much over the last 50 years have you thought of Jochen? Oh, a lot. <laughs> what kind of situation? No, but because of Nina, because she comes down and we go up to her. We, we live less than a kilometre away from each other. And I phoned her most every day. She's fantastic with Helen, for example. And, you know, Helen's a difficult time for Helen. And uh, Nina is her best friend. What do you think Jochen would have made of modern Formula One? Oh, I think he would have liked it. <laughs> I think he would have been involved in it. I think he, he would have been part of it. Uh, but he would have been in business doing other things. I mean, uh, the, the, the only reason he would have been in Formula One would have been for money reasons. He, he was a driven, ambitious businessman. Bernie cared for him a lot. And I'm sure he and Bernie would have worked together. That would have been, Jochen would have been right in there. Right in there. And that was, he was full of new ideas and ambitions. And he would never have done what I've done. He would have done it in business. Whereas I stayed in the sport, you know, and, and brought in sponsorships and global multinationals. Jochen wouldn't have bothered with that. He said, well, I can build a house and do better than that. You know, that would have been his attitude. So, Jackie, finally, how are you going to mark the anniversary of his death on Saturday of this week? Probably not. I mean, I won't be at any party. I won't be in a church. No. I don't know. Jackie, do you still get emotional when you think about it now? Yeah. 50 years on. It's a long time, but no time, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem... It seems like yesterday. I mean, when somebody says 50 years, I couldn't believe it was 50 years. After all these years, to hear Jackie getting emotional when talking about his friend says everything you need to know about Jochen and the impact he had on the people close to him. Both Jackie and Helmut believe that Jochen would have gone into business with Bernie Ecclestone after retiring from driving. Bernie was, of course, already Jochen's manager. But what does Bernie reckon, and how does he remember his friend? You know, we just got on very, very well together, and uh, we used to play gin rummy, and, you know, we just got on well. We were just good friends. And then when we got there, Colin Chapman asked me if we could run this Formula 2 team with Graham Hill and Jochen. That's what we did. So that was your first foray into running a team, team ownership. Was that something that you were keen to do or, or had you actively sought to get involved in running a team? Or Yeah, I intended to do that. Jochen and I were intend, That was our intention, hmm. to have a, a Formula One team. Do you think Jochen was looking beyond retirement or did he want to race for his own team? He wasn't looking at that. I mean, it was a case that would have been a year probably after he died, we would have been running a team. So I, when I bought Connold, that was the intention. Can you remember how you felt when Jochen was 
crown world champion posthumously. Was his death at Monza any different to anyone else's because of the relationship you had with him? Or again, was it turn the page? It certainly was different, for sure. You know, Because we were very close, so it was different. So say those days, everything was different. Like when the accident happened with Colin Chapman there and the, the police in Italy wanted to get a hold of him and arrest him and do all the silly things they do and getting him out of the country to make sure he was safe and then looking after things there with Jochen. So the whole series was, everything was different. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, you become much closer with people when there's a bit of tragedy. We couldn't have been any closer than we were, but, you know, you sort of felt more. So that's when I decided then we'll, we'd give it a miss for a little while. Not for a little while, but then it was just given a miss. And 50 years on, when you think of Jochen, is there a particular moment, a particular image that you think of which puts a smile on your face? No, it was millions of things we did together, so to pick one out would be impossible. For people listening who didn't know Jochen Rint was he funny is there anything just can you just give us any anecdote or anything that just sums up Jochen's character because all the pictures I've seen of him are him he, he looked like he had a really cheeky grin I don't know if that's fair or not but was he quite cheeky he was really I suppose a bit of a practical joker oh god <laughs> the first of the practical jokers what kind of stuff did he do well I didn't ski or do anything in those days and he was a very good skier and he took me in a helicopter landed very high up in, very high up in a mountain for skiing and sort of explained to me how to get out complete with the skis and just disappeared the helicopter just went and I'm standing there with skis which I didn't know what to do with in a lot of snow, in not very good weather, and off went the helicopter with no, I'll be back soon or whatever. <laughs> so, so that was the sort of thing he would get What happened to. next? You've got to tell well, us no, the No, he came back, obviously. <laughs> but I mean, they're the sort of things that... Were you worried at one point? Not really. <laughs> nothing much to worry about. Yeah. A good example with him, Colin Chapman had designed a car that Jochen wasn't particularly excited about. So they had a big argument. And what used to happen, we went to a race. They both, Colin and him, would be in the same hotel, but they wouldn't be talking to each other. So Colin would call me, I'd be in England, Colin would call me and say something, say to York and then York, I'd tell York and then York say, he would tell him this. And this used to go on all the time. And that's how things happened, or didn't happen. And that, that was more, he was very straightforward with things and if he didn't like things he'd tell you straightforward you know some poignant memories from all three men and some hilarious ones too Jochen Rint definitely had a nose for mischief leaving Bernie on top of a mountain with no means of getting back down why not 
Jochen was clearly mad when he was a teenager, an adrenaline junkie who loved pushing everything to the limit and often beyond, be that on skis, motorbikes or in cars. Yet beneath that carefree exterior, he clearly had a plan, which culminated in him not only making it to the pinnacle of Formula One, but becoming a successful entrepreneur with his motor show and TV exploits. My thanks to Helmut, Jackie and Bernie for their time. Jochen Rint was a legend and is much missed. And his name deserves to be shouted to F1 fans the world over, young and old. Well, that's almost it for this week. But before I go, let's rummage through the virtual mailbag to hear what you're saying about the show. And you love a bit of tech, don't you? Anne S said this about last week's episode with Mercedes engine boss Andy Cowell. Loved this week's show. Fascinating to hear Andy discuss the drive to keep improving the engine and working with Hamilton and on Project Pit Lane. Amazing opportunities in a wonderful career. Can't wait to see where he goes next. Thanks, Anne. Yes, where is Andy going next? The F1 world waits to find out. And this from Dave Stott. What a great podcast this week with Andy Cowell. It was brilliant to hear how energised he was during Project Pit Lane to help so many poor souls with their COVID experience. Hearing about his time at Cosworth and Mercedes-Benz high-performance powertrains really had me hooked from start to finish. Well, me too, Dave. Andy's such an interesting man and so passionate about everything he does. Dr. Evil, really? Dr. Evil? Dr. Evil added... Andy Cowell has been one of the most insightful interviewees you've ever had. I completely loved his thrill of chasing RPM and the insight he presented into the challenges that went into this. A perspective that we, the fans, rarely hear. I'm glad you enjoyed the show, Doc, and thanks for getting in touch. That's it for this week, folks. I'm now in Italy for this unique doubleheader at Monza and then Mugello. It's going to be quite something, as will my waistline in a couple of weeks' time. Please keep your messages coming because I read each and every one of them. And as ever, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. I promise myself and the team read everything. If only we had time to reply to you all. Thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.